No, Thomas won that open. But uh, Martin Luther was, uh, as y'all know, the German reformer. He, he loved the book of Galatians. He loved it so much he called it his Catherine. I wonder how that went over with his wife, whose name is Catherine. I, I, I just wonder whether <laughs> what she thought of that comment. But he felt such affection for this particular letter that, that he called it basically his wife. Um, for Luther, the concept of justification by faith was monumental. Indeed, it was monumental. It's really the central tenet of the entire Reformation. And it's in this book, Book of Galatians, that Paul first introduces that. And he writes about it a little bit later when he writes Romans. In fact, he writes about it in great detail in Romans. But this book here uh, is probably, if, if I understand the chronology correctly, this is probably one of, if not the first book that Paul wrote. It's a treatise on Christian freedom. Paul, in this book, is talking about the freedom that we have in Christ. But it's a book that's steeped in controversy. The churches uh, in this area of Galatia, this would be modern-day central Turkey, uh, if you want to get your bearings straight in your mind. These churches were going through a fight for the genuine gospel. The group of people had infiltrated the church that were known as Judaizers. They taught that in order to be a good Christian, you first had to be a good Jew. That you couldn't really be a Christian without following the commands of God in the Old Testament. And some of those things we would agree with, right? The Ten Commandments are certainly still valid. Amen? They are. They are God's law. But there are other things, too, that you have to do according to these folks. You have to eat the right foods. You have to be circumcised if you're male. You have to go through the rituals. You have to offer the sacrifices. You have to do all of the things that God requires in the Old Testament in order to be a good Jew so that you can actually follow Christ because you can't really follow Christ if you're not really following the law. And what they ended up doing was taking a group of people that Paul would argue had been set free through the gospel trying to shackle them with the burden of men's expectations. Paul's response, and it had to be a swift response, as soon as he hears of the crisis in action, he gets to writing the letter. We talked about the Sunday school with, with, with the boy. Uh, I talked about the fact that in the ancient world, you couldn't just call somebody up on the phone. You had, to, you had to get word to them somehow, and so you write them a letter. And when you wrote them a letter, a carrier would have to come, take the letter, and deliver it to the people. And that's what Paul does. He writes this letter to be taken to these churches to speak into their crisis. This morning we're going to begin a series examining the book of Galatians. We'll see what the gospel is. We'll see what God's word says about how we come to faith and what role the law plays for the Christian. We'll talk about how to live in the Spirit. We'll see what it means to be set free. So stand with me as we read together from the first chapter of Galatians. Today's sermon's going to be a little bit different. We're going to read the first five verses and talk a little bit about them, but we're also going to be talking about the whole book. We're going to get a 30,000 feet overview of what Paul says in this letter, okay? 
So I know it's going to be a slight difference from what we normally do. Normally we get into detail by detail of the text. Today we're going to take more of a sweeping overview. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. Pinned into a real historical situation. This isn't divorced from reality. And if you let it, it will speak into your reality. Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our God whom be the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, these are your words. And Lord, just as you spoke them to a people who really lived, who really had problems, who really had questions, who had things weighing on their minds and hearts, who had lives that they lived, You also speak these words to us. And Father, we ask you to illuminate your word that we will not only know what you said to them, but we'll also know what you're saying to us. Use your word to communicate. Christ, in your prayer. Amen. Y'all can sit. This, this book of Galatians is, uh, I, I've already told you, it's Paul's treatise on freedom. And so one of, the, one of the key things that Paul needs to do is to set out what freedom really is. And what Paul recognizes is that if you lose the gospel, you don't have freedom. That the, the, the gospel is what brings freedom. But before he can even do that, he has to address a problem. One of the tactics that the Judaizers were using to get at Paul was to claim he wasn't a legitimate apostle. This guy, you can't really say he's an apostle. From We have to put together the argument from Paul's side. But what it looks like they were saying was, well, he didn't really walk with Jesus, did he? No, Paul didn't know Jesus. Not, not while he was on earth. But trust me, Paul knew Jesus. But that was after the fact. Paul didn't really follow along with Jesus. He wasn't listening to the daily teachings as Jesus was going and doing. As Jesus was in the temple that final week, we don't see Paul on the scene. We don't see Paul coming up and asking him questions. We don't see Paul mocking him among the Pharisees or the Sadducees. We don't see Paul involved in those activities. We don't see Paul as being one of the ones who was driven out of the temple when he was clearing tables. We don't see him. We don't see him anywhere in the life of Christ. It's not until after Christ. It's not until Stephen is stoned in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 7. From there. That we first see Paul on the scene. Paul was a man who was greatly affected when he met Jesus. And boy, boy, couldn't that be true of all of us? Shouldn't we all be able to say that our lives were dramatically changed when we came to meet Jesus? 
But this morning, he has been he has been working and moving to, to plant churches and to establish the gospel throughout many different places in the Roman Empire. And he's making his way toward Rome. He's trying to get to Rome. Because that's where the action is, baby. That's where, if I can get to Rome, and I can start a church in Rome, if I can get the gospel planted in Rome, imagine the good that it will do across the world. So he's on his way there, but as he's going, he's planting churches. He's starting these groups of Christians and houses, meeting together to pray, to learn the word of God, to live out their faith. And among these churches, they're starting to have a problem of false teaching. Paul says, I've got to get rid of this. But one of the things that they were teaching about Paul was that he wasn't consuming them. And so before he can even really address the issue at hand, though he's going to throw it in here and there, though he's going to mix it into what he's saying, because it's so much a part of his life he can't help it, he's first about to address the criticism that he's not a legitimate and so the first thing Paul does in this letter is establish his authoritative position. Paul's authoritative position. When you're an apostle, that's pretty authoritative, isn't it? I mean, that is a high-level position. If we were to talk about a business, the apostles would be like the C-level executives. They would be absolutely critical to the leading this Christian community were. They were the ones planting churches. They were the ones establishing the faith among new believers. They were the ones that were training up godly leaders for the next generation. Godly leaders who, like Polycarp, for example, you've heard that name. He was a direct disciple of one of the apostles. For Paul, his authority doesn't come from men. Look in, look in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle. That word apostle meant an envoy, a special messenger. It would be similar to our ambassadors. So if you go to an embassy in a foreign country, we have an ambassador there who does diplomatic dealings with that foreign government. So if you go, let's just say, to... I don't know, just pick a country where we have an embassy. Let's say, let's just say Uruguay. We have an ambassador, an ambassador in Uruguay, an embassy, where that ambassador can help facilitate relations between our two countries. Who will look after America's best interests but we'll try to work with the Uruguay government and do those kinds of things. That's what, that's what an apostle is. They're an ambassador. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. You know this verse. You guys should know it too since y'all are RAs. What does uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 say? Y'all know? Y'all better know this. Mr. Roberts can get you if you don't. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It's the RA verse. What does it say? Oh no. We got some work to do, huh? <laughs> we are ambassadors for Christ. He saw himself in this role of ambassador, and part of that was from his apostolic calling. He was an ambassador for Christ to the Gentiles. 
But notice what he says. He says it doesn't, uh, his, his authority is not from men. It's not from men. In other words, men aren't the source of his authority. And it's not through men. Men are not the, the means by which Paul gets his apostolic standing. Paul is not an apostle because somebody appointed him as an apostle. Paul is not an apostle because somebody kept his credentials and gave him the rubber stamp that says, you are qualified to be an apostle. No apostle is an apostle because of men. That's not an office that men give. We elect a president. We elect a mayor. We elect a governor. But we don't elect apostles. The leadership of the church is a position that is given by God. And we recognize that. That, By the way, ordination. Let me tell you what ordination is. If you're going to ordain somebody as a Christian minister, you're not really the one doing the ordaining. God has already ordained them. We as churches can recognize the calling that God has put on someone's life. And we affirm that. That's what ordination really is. It's an affirmation that God has anointed that person for service. And I'm going to tell you all something. Guess what? If you're saved, you are appointed by God for purpose. One day, maybe we'll have an ordination service for y'all and, and ordain you to the ministry that God has called you to. That doesn't mean you have to get up here and preach. I don't want to hear some of you preach anyway. That's fine. Y'all don't want to hear me. It's okay. We're all good. But God has called you to ministry. God has called you to using your gifts to serve Him in the place where you are. I want to tell you something. You are just as appointed by God, just as anointed by God to do what you're doing as anybody else is. There's no special anointing that separates clergy from laity. It's a different kind of call, but it's still a call from the same source. God has called us all to play our role in putting forward the kingdom of God and presenting the gospel to the nations in seeing his will done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why Jesus puts that in the Lord's Prayer. So that God would break our hearts for the fact that it hasn't been completed yet and would urge us to participate in his work. Paul's authoritative position is not from men, it's from God. He's an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ. He bound the Father and raised him from the dead. And then he mentions in verse 2, there's some folks with him, all the brothers who are with him. Folks could come and go. At this point in time, Paul is in a place where he's getting visitors, and, and folks are coming in and telling him about the churches that he's planted. That's probably how he knows about Galatia. He's probably gotten some brothers from the area who have said, Paul, you've got to know about this. we got real trouble here. And this is why he acts by writing this letter. So his authority is not from men, it's from God. God is the source of his authority. The same God that raised Christ from the dead is the same God that gives Paul the apostolic calling, and he, by the way, is the same God who's called you to the ministry to which God wants you for He's that same God. He hasn't changed. And, oh, we talk about law of life. It's just so much different now than it was then. Not really. Not really. Oh, we've got different technology. 
good difference in meaning. I want you to know the early church was out meeting in the church building in pews. They were meeting in a house. Some of them sitting on the floor because there weren't enough seats. Maybe some not even sitting. Standing around. Worshiping God. Seeking to follow Him with their lives. And it's the same calling to which we're called today. And so I see in this kind of the, uh, uh, one specific thing. One critical aspect of this. God is the one who gives us our authority. Not people. It's not from men. It's from God. He also defends his authority in other ways. In chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, he talks more about how God is the direct source of his authority. He moves on in, chapter, in verses 18 through 24 and telling them that his authority was to be exercised among the Gentiles. There were some who were called to preach to Jews. And they preached to Jews. Paul was called among the Gentiles. And so he preached the gospel among the Gentiles. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he tells them that though the apostles didn't give him the authority, though they're not the source of his authority, they did recognize God's movement in his life. And that's an important role that we play for each other. We recognize how God has called each other to different types of ministry. And we affirm each other in that. And we build each other up and we encourage each other. That's part of how we do as the Christian life. We'll talk more about that a little while later in this, in this book. But then in verses 11 to 14, you know, sometimes being in authority means you've got to confront error. And sometimes it means confronting error in other authority. Paul talks about how in one particular case he had to correct a fellow apostle who was wrong in his practice. And so we have Paul's authoritative position. The second thing he tells us about is his authoritative proclamation. Not only is he in the position of authority, but the word that he's speaking is authoritative as well. His authoritative proclamation. In verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1, read those. Grace to you and peace. This is Paul's greeting, right? This is his typical greeting. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul gives us an introduction to grace and peace. And then in verse 4, he starts telling us about Christ. Really laying out the core of the gospel. Christ gave himself. Why? For our sins. You see that? Who gave himself for our sins. God didn't respond to our righteousness. It's like he was caught off guard and he had to figure out a, a, a plan. Oh no, what am I going to do? They, they, committed, they committed error. They sinned. What am I going to do? I've got to figure out something. No, no, no. This was pre-planned before time even began. God had in mind exactly what he was going to do. But it was once we sin that God puts that plan into motion. A plan that would lead to Christ dying on the cross. That it was on account of our unrighteousness. God gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age. He delivered us from the present evil age with the effect of rescuing us from certain damnation. You see, we deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve that punishment. 
But God interjects his grace to say, no, I'm not going to give you that punishment that you deserve, even though you deserve it. I'm going to take that punishment upon myself. I'm going to send my son to die for your sins so that you can be rescued, so that you can be delivered. Third thing, according to the will of God our Father, it's all part of his plan. And Paul's proclamation is Christ giving himself up to rescue us from the hell that we deserve. All part of God. To Paul, the gospel was the only basis for his authority. He doesn't have authority apart from the gospel. What would he need to be an ambassador for if he didn't have a message? Ambassadors have to have some kind of message. They have to have some sort of reason for which they are sent out. If they don't have a word, Chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. Listen to what Paul says about the gospel. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And he's using this phrase that's commonly used. The Judaizers were probably using this phrase, referring to the people in that church as Gentile sinners because they weren't fulfilling the works of the law. And so he uses this phrase in order to make his point. Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Here is the crux of Paul's message. We are not justified by the things that we do. We're justified by trusting in the things that God has done. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You think you're going to be justified by works? Too bad. How good do you have to be to be justified by works? Well, I'm telling you how good you have to be. You have to be perfect. And that's just to meet God's demands. I had a, a manager who used to do annual review. And it was a one to five scale. Five was great. One was terrible. You got a one, you probably would have already been fired. So, so she didn't really get out ones. She didn't get out fives either. You had to justify fives. In other words, this, this person has to be the most amazing, whatever. <coughs> and practically the whole company gets fired. So a lot of people got threes. Getting, being perfect is like getting a three on your evaluation from God. Fortunately, I think I'm somewhere in the one range on my own righteousness. Even if I was perfect, the best I could do is flat in the middle of the road, exactly what God expects. What am I going to give him beyond what he expects? How am I going? How am I going to be any better to be perfect? This doesn't happen. Paul's saying, "Look, this is too high to walk. We can't. We can That sinful nature is born within us. 
from the very moment that our life begins at conception, we have a sinful nature. And I know you don't want to think about a baby in the womb being a sinner, but they are. That's why Jesus said you got to be born again, remember? Because you were born wrong the first time. You were born in sin. And so now he said, he said, look, you cannot be justified by what you do. You're just not going to be good enough. No, we're justified by Christ. We're justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works. This is why Paul, uh, about why Martin Luther loved this epistle so much. It, he, he goes on in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Is Christ then the servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, if, if you mess something up and you fix it, you prove that you did wrong in the first place. It's the best we can try to do is try to fix what we mess up. Try to fix. If you're like me, it's kind of halfway sort of deeper sometimes. Um, my car is killing me, buying me, all sorts of different problems. And anytime I try to fix one, it's kind of. Have you ever heard the phrase Gary Lee? Yeah, that's the best I can do. I had a farmer friend who was a professional Gary River. He's got a PhD in Gary River. Um, he, he, his stuff is just, he can't afford to fix farming equipment. Not with a small farm. Best you can do is just make it keep working. Just get it, get it to work. As long as it works. Doesn't have to be pretty. Doesn't have to be perfect. Just get it to work. I don't care if I have to keep adding oil as long as I can get it to run and harvest that cotton or those soybeans or whatever it happens to be, right? Just make it run. The best we can do is Gary rig it when it comes to righteousness. And I'm going to tell you something. If you're trying to trust in your own works, if you're trying to trust in the very good things that you can do to be good enough to earn God's favor, it will not work. It's like having, it's like having radiator hoses, duct tape around them. No. Paul's proclamation is that we are saved by the gospel. We're not saved by anything else, by anyone else, other than Christ. And that gospel, so it's not something you add on to the wall. It's not like a vacuum attachment. You know vacuum attachment. You got your shop back, you got all these different attachments. Or if you're if you're really fancy, we had a guy one time come and show us a rainbow vacuum. And the whole time I'm thinking, how much is this costing? And he gave the cost at the end. And I said, Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, I kind of figured that might happen. But I can get you good deals and everything, and it's still well over. We had this, uh, this this rainbow that was all these different things and has all these different attachments and all these different features and great stuff and everything, and that's wonderful. But that's not the Christian life. Christianity is not an attachment you put on your vacuum to get your drinks. It's not an attachment you put on for the hard times. It's not an attachment that you put on to get up the pet air. It's not the attachment that you put on to, to do a certain function. It's not the part you change out to make it a wet vacuum. 
instead of just a dry vacuum. It's not that at all. Christianity is like chunking your old vacuum. It doesn't even work anyway. You get yourself an A who cleans it for you. Talk all you want about being a Christian and being a free person, but if you've never come to Christ, if you've never crucified yourself and come to Jesus Christ in simple, childlike faith to say, I trust you, then you're not really free. You don't know what freedom really is. Freedom comes where we are justified before God, but that doesn't happen to what we do, it happens to what God does. And that's Paul's central message. Faith in Christ is the only thing that gives us right standing. After all, he said, the Son, therefore, sets you free. Set you free indeed. You've been set free? Justified? To be your justification? <laughs> the third thing that Paul gives us in this book, in chapters 3 and 4, he talks about his authoritative proof. He's made his authoritative proclamation. Now he's going to set out in the next couple chapters proving it, showing that it's not by the law, but by faith. And in fact, what he ends up showing us is a couple different things. First, that the Spirit comes by faith. If you want the Spirit of God, you get it by faith. You don't get it by your works. You, how are you going to get God's Spirit by works? It's not like a gold medal that you earn. It's something that God offers the one who trusts in him. His spirit dwells within us. You don't receive it by law. So why are you going to go back to the law once you have his spirit? It makes no sense. This is where he calls them foolish. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians! Dummies? Don't you know that you got the spirit of God when you put faith in Christ? Why are you going to go back? He also tells us that the promises of God come by faith and not by works. In verses 10 through 18 of chapter 3, he quotes the book of Habakkuk, where God tells the prophet, the just shall live by faith. The promises of God come through faith. They don't come through the law. God doesn't make the promises through the law. He makes the promises through faith in promise. In fact, look at Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God gave Abraham a promise. I'll make you, I'll make your, your, your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the grains of sand on the ground. Now they're in, they're in Mary with a lot of sand. now know is that we don't see very many stars in the sky. Most of what we see are galaxies. Those galaxies are full of stars. It's estimated the average galaxy and Milky Way is about average in size. has about 100,000 stars. There are way over 100,000 galaxies 
figured out so far. You can ask the man of your life. And yet, even now, Promise came to Abraham about 430 years later. God meets the Israelites on Mount Sinai and gives them the law. The promise comes centuries before the law. But how can you say the promise comes through the law? It comes from faith. Third thing he tells us. And this one, this one really caught my eye. Because if you, up to this point, you might think, oh, well, so we can just throw out the law, right? I mean, we might keep the stuff that Jesus said, but we'll just throw out the rest. The rest of it doesn't matter, right? No, because faith comes by means of the law. Think of the law like a road. If you're going to go to somebody's house, you drive on the road to get to their house. But it doesn't get you in there get you up to the house. You gotta go in. Of course they got it. <laughs> that might be a problem for some. <laughs> the law is the road to get you to the house. But it's faith that gets you in the door. It helps put you in the right position. But it doesn't take you all it shows you that you're a sinner. It shows you that you are desperately in need of grace. It shows you that Christ died on the cross for your sins. Gets you to that point. But you have to put your trust in Christ to take that step of faith that gets you all the way. Faith comes by means of the law. So after he's made his proof, he then asks, but now, we do now. In light of all this, in light of the fact that we're justified by faith and not by works, what, what does this matter for life? So chapters 5 and 6 tells us his authoritative progression. So now that you're justified by faith, what does it look like? First, and I, and I think these things are, I think these things are good things for us. Stated them as rules, so to speak. You must. I put them in the you must category. You don't really have to, but I want to tell you something. If you want to live the kind of life, the kind of freedom that Christ has called you to live by, by trusting in Him, then I guarantee you, you're not going to live any other way than by doing these things. First, we must move from slavery to freedom. You see, the law, in a sense, has made us slaves. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There are some Christians who will give you a list a mile wide of things. You cannot do these things. Dot, 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 all the way down. And some of them are exactly right because Scripture says don't do those things. But we have a tendency as men and women too, to put our own fears ahead of God's own commands. We set up the safeguards to try to keep us from getting too close to the edge 
And what we end up doing is hemming ourselves in and restricting us from things that would be okay as long as we know, we know, we know who the God is that controls us. There are some things that we won't do, some places that we won't go, that God doesn't really care if we go or if we do, but we won't go there. There are some people who will not own a TV because there are bad channels on TV. Are there bad channels? Absolutely. Are there bad shows? You bet there are. That's why there's a thing called remote. Don't put it on one of those channels. That's all you got to do. Some people throw out the whole lot because, oh, well, that's bad. Some people don't have Facebook. Let me tell you something. Some of us don't need Facebook nearly as much as we're on. Amen? Amen. I started a few weeks ago. It was bad. I wish I could. I wish there was a setting on there that I could set to uh, pop up every 10 seconds. What should you be doing right now? Christ has set us free from a legalism that so restricts us that we think we can't even smile because the smile would give the wrath of God. Now there's some things you shouldn't do. If you don't want to drink, that's a good thing. Don't drink. There are some very bad consequences that come from drinking, especially drinking. Some people, they start drinking, they won't stop. I will not stop drinking if I start drinking. I'm still in heaven. I couldn't do it. That's why I don't drink. That, I heard it in case I was supposed to be. I'm just not interested in drinking more. But, But, in all seriousness, I recognize that I can't stop eating cinnamon rolls. How much worse is it if it's alcohol? And so I set that as a thing of, I'm not going to do that. But if I'm having dinner with somebody and they're drinking a beer, I cannot enforce what I don't want to do for me as though it's God's law against them. It's not what he says. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. He does say that. And if that's a problem, then it needs to be addressed. But I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes we let our legal, moral sort of safeguards block out God's commands. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees took a law with 618 commandments and expanded it to several thousand. In fact, there's a whole book of the interpretation of how you live out the law called the Talmud. I want to say it's like 25 volumes or something like that. Now they give explanation and commentary of what it's not just just a list of rules. We can take God's word and ruin it legally. But Christ has called us to freedom. It doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. It means that in God's power, we have the ability to do the right thing, and we shouldn't be limited by our own rules and regulations from doing the things that God wants us to do. 
Since Christ has set us free from the bonds of sin, why would we go back to slavery? It just doesn't make sense. Secondly, we have to move from the fleshly life, put that in quotes, not real life, to spiritual life. Verse 16, but I say, walk in the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. You see, the desires of the flesh are nasty. Look how it describes them in verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, enmity excuse me, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so, Okay, how many of you think, yes, this is the life I want? Yeah. Doesn't sound very good, does it? See, we've been called out of this thing. Life in the Spirit looks a lot more fruitful. Very next verse. Through the Spirit. Love. playing with the word with me here. Listen, against such things there is no law. God, through his spirit, enables you to live the kind of life that the law is trying to get you to live. He says, go ahead and look through the law. You're not going to find anything against those. That's the kind of life you can live in the Spirit. That's real life. we got to get out of this way of living where we're slaves for our own petty desires and passions. we got to get out of that. we got to get away from that. We, it, instead, we've got to live a real kind of life. A life where we model the life of our Lord and Savior who has freed us from our own worst enemies. The person we face in this. So we move from fleshly life to life, spiritual life. Last, we got to move from self-love to selfless love. When we live in the Spirit, it's only natural that we love one another. Tell me this. I, the, the, the word I hear more than any other about this church and it's not just from people who go to this church who are members of this church. It's from people who walk in the door. It's from people who grew up here and now have families that have lived elsewhere. It's, it's from people who know this community from the outside that say, that's a family. We'll, we'll love one another Storm each other when we fall. Sometimes we mess up. We love one another by helping each other bear our loads. You know, some of us have stronger backs than others. And I've seen a bunch of ants pick up 
giant pieces of food, much, much bigger than they are, because they're working together. And carry each other's loads. That doesn't mean you carry my load so I don't have to. That means let's get it together. We help each other by sharing the fruits of our labor. As one person is ministering, someone else is helping them. As one person is doing God's work, the person who is receiving God's work is sharing the benefits. In short, he says in verse 10 of chapter 6, So then, as we have opportunity, let us be good to especially to those who are in the household. Do you remember, remember that Jesus quote we quoted a few minutes ago? So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free to do That life in the Spirit does not come through your works. You can live like a law all day long and it never gets back. But when you have freedom, freedom in Christ, who frees you from the shackles of your sin, who frees you from death, who frees you from bondage, who frees you from legalism, who frees you from powerlessness, who frees you from inadequacy, who frees you from ambiguity, who frees you from merely being here, who frees you from anxiety, who frees you from doubt, who frees you from anything and everything that prevents you from becoming the man or woman that God has designed you to be. When the sun makes you free, you break. Don't get saved. I'm going to sing that invitation song. I'm going to invite you to come. I'll be here tonight. You trust Christ.